to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Brain for Biz and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. I'm delighted to be speaking today to Professor Aaron Westgate. Dr. Aaron Westgate is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Florida, where she studies boredom, interest, and why some thoughts are more engaging than others. She received her PhD in social psychology from the University of Virginia in 2018 with the intriguingly titled doctoral dissertation, Why Boredom is Interesting. Much of Erin's research has been on the conditions under which people enjoy or equally do not enjoy their own thoughts. She's extended that work to the larger question of why people become bored, developing a new model of boredom that explains what boredom is, why we experience it, and what happens when we do. Erin, welcome to Brain for Business. It is great to speak to you. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. As a psychologist, how would you define boredom? So boredom is an emotion like any other we might experience. So like anger or sadness, its job is to give us information about the world. And in the case of boredom, it's just trying to tell us that what we're doing right now isn't something that we're meaningfully and successfully engaged in. And does that mean then implicitly that boredom is a a good thing or a bad thing? Or is it just a, a thing that we all have to deal with? You know, I I love this question because there's definitely empirical research showing that boredom sometimes causes good things to happen. And there's research showing that boredom sometimes causes bad things to happen. So I think like like your question suggests, it's, it's the wrong question. Boredom isn't good and boredom isn't bad. It's just information. And it's what we do with that information that determines whether, you know, in that particular instance, feeling bored was a good thing or a bad thing. Building upon that then, would you say that there are different types of of boredom or or is it really just this one single construct or, or concept that we all have to deal with? Yeah, it's a fantastic question, because I think when we think of boredom or really any kind of emotion, we kind of get like one particular kind of, you know, that state in mind. Like if you think of sadness, you think of like someone like crying and bawling, but there's many ways to be sad and there are many ways to be bored. So in our own research, for instance, we find that you can be bored because something isn't meaningful. And being bored because something doesn't feel meaningful feels different than being bored because you can't pay attention to what you're doing. So we, we, we call them both boredom, but one of them feeling bored because something is meaningless. It's really more this sort of like high arousal, like, oh, my God, get me out of here kind of boredom. And being bored because something is too hard or too easy, it doesn't feel like that. It's often that kind of, you know, like laying on the couch being like, oh, my God, there's nothing to do. You know, I feel really lazy. 
And those kinds of boredom feel really different. And we think they might do different things, but we call them boredom and experience them as boredom because they have that same kind of root cause in sort of realizing that, you know, hey, we're not able to meaningfully engage in what we're doing. The, the nuances of that may vary and our experience of it can vary. So I like to say there's a million different ways to be bored, unfortunately, although that also means that there's a million different ways to fix it and stop being bored as well. The, I guess the one other area, just thinking while you were speaking there, where boredom perhaps comes up is when we have that monotony. And I'm thinking, for example, of, you know, a kid on the backseat of their parents' car driving for, you know, a 10 hour journey or being stuck on a long haul flight. And there's literally nothing to do. Your head is just bored. Is that a separate kind of boredom? Or does that perhaps fit within the categories you mentioned? I think it does fit. And I it's what I often call double bad boredom. That's my very scientific term for it. But essentially, we think that if boredom can be caused by a lack of meaning, and boredom can be caused by a lack of attention, those are both bad. But what's really bad is when what you're doing is neither meaningful, and it's hard to pay attention because there's literally nothing to do. So you're incredibly understimulated. So I think the reason we kind of think about that you know, being stuck somewhere in an airport or in the backseat of your parents' car with nothing to do as this sort of prototypical boredom is because it encompasses sort of all of the ways of being bored all at once in that you're sitting there, there's nothing to do, which is understimulating, which causes attentional failures, which leads to boredom. But also doing nothing is like by definition not meaningful. So you also feel bored because there's this lack of meaning. So you're kind of being hit by all sides, like every way that there is to be bored you're experiencing it, and that ramps up the boredom levels as well. Are some people in that regard then perhaps more prone to being bored than others? So people who, who might typically look for a lot of stimulation, a lot of challenge in their lives, do, do they perhaps have a, have a lower threshold for boredom or is there something else going on? You know, uh, that's a great question. As someone who frequently gets bored myself, I, I won't ask you about whether you get bored a lot, <laughs> um, uh, but I know I get bored more often than others. And there is actually something called the boredom proneness scale, which you can take, which lets sort of scores where you are on how easily you get bored compared to other people, but also how often you get bored. And we have, for instance, uh, this is sort of a fun little finding we have in our own research that I think speaks to this, that we know, for instance, that high SES folks, so folks who make more money or you know have more education, they tend to report feeling less bored in everyday life if you just kind of beep them as they go about their days. But if we bring those same folks into the lab, so out in the world, it looks like they're less boredom prone, they're experiencing less boredom. Uh, but when we bring them into the lab, they actually seem to experience more boredom when we actually put them into a boredom induction in a boring situation. And what we think is happening there is that out in the real world, if you're coming from this high SES background, you probably have an interesting job. You have a lot of choice and autonomy and control over your day. And you can kind of just choose not to do boring things. But when you bring us, when we bring you into the lab, you might just not have that practice and strategies for when you actually are stuck in a boring situation of what you can do to reduce boredom. So it's a really fascinating question of whether people get bored more often or easily than others. They definitely do. But why that is and what pieces of that are relevant? Is it that 
you know, some of us are just better at picking activities so we don't get bored in the first place? Or is it about managing boredom once it arises? That's work that we as researchers are still doing. And I don't think we have a solid answer quite yet. And to clarify, when you say high SES, you mean socioeconomic status, is that correct? Yes, socioeconomic status. And I think to go back to your question that you kind of didn't, but almost did direct direct at me, absolutely, I, I, I do get bored. And, and, and I think the, the way that plays out for me is always looking for some kind of intellectual challenge. Because if I get understimulated, particularly in a, in a role and feel or job, and feel that I can't move beyond that or move out of that or do something different that's when it's the the end i have to i have to make a really big move and i can see how that's played out through my career uh, more more broadly i i love that because one of the things that we've been studying is people who lead psychologically rich lives which is a life filled with a variety of interesting and perspective changing experiences and we've theorized that one reason that some people's lives are richer than others may be exactly what you just talked about, Lori, that like when you feel bored, it leads you to, you know, seek out new experiences and uh, new varieties that you might not have encountered otherwise. So thank you for that little sort of anecdotal piece of evidence for this this line of research that we've been thinking about. <laughs> well, maybe that's what uh, interested me when I came across your research in the, in the first place. And we're talking a good bit there about the person uh, as being perhaps the, the fulcrum of the, the the boredom but is there also uh, a degree to which context can be can be part of someone who is or an influence i should say on someone who is consistently bored how does that play out in in real world terms Oh, absolutely. So researchers have looked at whether boredom is something that's more about who you are as a person versus something about the situations or environments you're in. And at least in just everyday life, walking around in our lives, it looks like the situation is far more powerful. And these studies are actually pretty bleak. If you look at it, the number one place that people are most bored if they're um, out of school is at work. And the number one place they're most bored if they're still, you know, in, you know, in education or younger is at school. So workplaces and schools are dramatically, especially boring. And that's part of why we don't see as much individual differences between people in those settings that it, the effect of the situation that you're in in that context is just so strong that like, you know, maybe you or I get less bored or more bored, it sounds like, than other people. But if you put any of us into a really boring situation, um, we're going to find it boring. And that's just human nature. And I think that's really interesting when I think about, say, the world of work, or you mentioned as well there, the, the world of schools and, and education. Because does that then have implications for how maybe motivated people are, how engaged people are, and consequently how much they might perhaps learn or, or contribute in those different situations? Yeah, I think it does. And I think it's also, I think of boredom in those contexts as being a symptom. So just like, you know, if you have like a cough or, you know, especially in this day and age, you know, your shortness of breath, et cetera, you're going to go to the doctor, not because the cough itself is going to make bad things happen, because it's a, it's a warning sign that something might be going on, that you might have COVID or, you know, hopefully just a cold, but you need to go and get it checked out. And I think of boredom in educational settings and in the workplace as the same thing that 
it's a warning sign of deeper problems. So if you feel bored when you're under-challenged or over-challenged, which we know people do, boredom in the workplace is a sign that people are not working in that sort of sweet spot where they really are able and they're appropriately challenged. You know, they have enough to do. It's enough challenging to stay engaged. They're either being asked to do too much or too little, which both of those are problems. And, you know, it also may just be that it's a lack of meaning. And we know from lots and lots and lots of other work that meaning in the workplace and intrinsic motivation are really important. And so I think of boredom as this sort of warning sign that either we're asking too much or too little of workers or of students, or what we're asking of them, we've failed to help them understand why the tasks and work that they're doing are meaningful and that they should care about them. So I think boredom in these kinds of settings is enormously important and a huge sort of red flag that like we need to step in and see what it is exactly diagnose what's going wrong here so that we can fix it and in that regard does long-term persistent boredom have a greater impact than that kind of you know saturday afternoon sitting on the on the couch bored can't find anything to do is there a is there a difference between the two in terms of their impact on people, their functioning, etc. Yeah, it's a great question. And you have now brought us right up to the cutting edge of research on boredom, because we don't know. Uh, we certainly suspect that it should be different, that it's not just a degree of like quantity. It's not just more boredom, but that it may be a different type of boredom that is more severe, like you suggest. Um, but that research hasn't been done. So psychologists have only been studying boredom for about 50 years. And a lot of that work that's taken place has been done just in the past 15 to 20 years. And so we actually don't have studies in really tightly controlled settings where we've brought folks into the lab and made them bored for even more than like 20 minutes at a time. One of my collaborators right now, Stefan Fateiker in Denmark, is actually planning a study where we bring folks into the lab and basically leave them in a room with nothing to do for hours to test this and see, like, does it matter if you have this kind of extended boredom? And if so, why? And how is it different from that kind of short-term boredom? Because right now, um, I can speculate, but we actually don't know the answer, which as a scientist is very exciting. Um, as a practitioner and someone who wants to apply these findings, it can be a little bit more difficult since it's just, you know, the science just hasn't gotten quite there yet. This may be a very odd link to make, and so please do stop me and disabuse me of this uh, conceptual notion. But it strikes me that things like solitary confinement and indeed forms of torture to an extent perhaps rely on boredom, that the, the human brain is almost forced to turn in on itself because there is zero stimulation from the environment that the person finds himself. Am I going too far off on a beam? No, no, I don't think you are. I was actually at um, Alcatraz last week um, and I was standing in front of the solitary confinement cells and one of the national park guides, because it's part of the national park system here in the US now, was talking about how one of the danger or one of like what makes solitary confinement so aversive is having to just sit and be alone with your own thoughts and she was asking all of us if we'd ever considered what that would be like and i wanted to be like yes yes i do research on this it's it's not great um and so you know on the one hand 
it is very, very, very far, hopefully, from the kinds of boredom that you and I experience in everyday life. But if you think of it as a continuum, surely it's on that same continuum that in our everyday lives, we might feel like, you know, a flicker of boredom when you're watching a Netflix show or something. And on the other far extreme of that would be the kind of boredom that sets in when, yeah, you take away from people every source of stimulation, you take away from them other people, which we know is one of the most important sources of meaning to human beings. It's just those social connections and social engagement with others. And those situations are, you know, theoretically at least, almost certain to result in profound, profound boredom. And I think the question then is whether it's really boredom that's a problem at that point or whether, you know, yes, it's boring, but it evolves into something that is, you know, deeper and darker, something more like depression and these really, really extreme uh, clinical states. But, you know, the question of whether they're related, I, I think, is certainly something that is impossible not to think about as someone who studies both boredom and studies why people don't enjoy being alone with their own thoughts. That certainly everything we know about these states would suggest that putting people into these states intentionally is going to be really, really unpleasant. And certainly that's like the point, right, of using things like solitary confinement. It's not being used to reward prisoners. No, absolutely not. I guess if we flip things around, though, it, it strikes me that boredom itself, and I, and I think from, from memory there's been some, some research in this area, was it by, by Bench and, and Lynch, looking at how boredom can actually motivate us to, to, to pursue new goals and, and possibly lead to things like creativity as we're you know, prodded down a path of, of doing something. Is that how things can work on the other side of the equation? I think it is. And like, I, you know, I said earlier that boredom is, you know, it's just a signal. It's just information. And we can do good things with that information. You know, if boredom's telling you like, hey, what you're doing right now isn't engaging. It's not meaningful. You should do something else. That's really important. And I think, as you mentioned, like the work by Bench and Lynch suggests that people seek out more novelty when they're bored. Um, certainly other work by other researchers has suggested that it's possible that boredom may in some situations make people more creative or behave in more pro-social ways. I think the easiest way to think about it is that boredom motivates us to take action. And that can be good actions like exploring new careers and new activities, or it can be bad action like hurting yourself or others. And that's the point I think where it really becomes more our own personal responsibility to know how, how you know, if we're going to take action to take the right actions when we feel bored. I guess in, in terms of those actions, the, the thing that sometimes strikes me as well is that when we're bored, and maybe this is just me, but when we're bored, our minds tend to wander and you can actually go on quite interesting journeys when your mind is wandering and possibly passively exploring things. Is that a known phenomenon? So I don't think they've been linked quite like that. There is a lot of work looking at mind wandering as kind of a symptom of boredom. Um, that seems to be more the case in boredom that's due to these problems with attention where you're doing something that is overstimulating or understimulating. And so you're having trouble paying attention and a classic feature of 
attentional regulation issues, quote unquote, is mind wandering. So one of my other lines of work actually looks at whether people do enjoy, you know, just sitting back and being alone with their own thoughts. And what we find is that it's a bit of a mixed bag that when you bring folks into the lab and ask them to intentionally do what you just described, you know, just like sit back, try to let your mind wander, you know, try to, you know, occupy yourself with pleasant thoughts. People don't enjoy it very much. They think it's somewhat enjoyable, somewhat entertaining, but they also find it somewhat boring when we let them do sort of fun things by themselves, like read or surf the internet. Uh, They enjoy doing fun things more than thinking fun thoughts. And in at least one study, uh, when we gave folks the opportunity of giving themselves an electric shock, about 67% of the men and 25% of the women chose to shock themselves rather than just sit and occupy themselves with your own thoughts, which I think is actually really puzzling because as you point out, it can be a really positive experience. It has the potential for it. And so it's not totally clear, or at least it wasn't why it is that people don't enjoy it the way you'd think. And what we think now is going on is that this kind of thinking can be really meaningful, but it's really difficult. It's really hard to get yourself into that mental state where either you're controlling your thoughts, you know, directing this whole sort of mental fantasy or letting your thoughts ride and float the way you describe. And because it's so hard for people to sort of cognitively finagle themselves into that right state, they do find it meaningful, but it's difficult and taxing, and that makes it kind of boring on average. But when everything lines up and the stars align and you're able to do it and you're able to think about things that are meaningful, we have had some success in getting people to actually enjoy that experience. And I think as well, it's possibly also slightly mystifying why anyone would choose to give themselves electric shocks, but that's possibly a different discussion. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Laura, I think when, you know, I mentioned that sometimes we make bad decisions when we're bored. And um, I think, you know, like I said, boredom makes us want to take action. And for at least some percentage of folks, if the action possible in front of them is an electric shock device, um, you know, they said five minutes ago they wouldn't do it and they'd be willing to pay money not to be shocked again. But boredom changes the equation and it it makes things appealing that might not have been appealing otherwise. And that can be really good if it pushes us towards novel and, you know, new experiences. But it can also be bad if it makes us, you know, start thinking about, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if I press that shock button. Right. I think I might uh, I might stay away from that particular piece of research and experimentation myself. What steps, though, apart from uh, giving themselves electric shocks, can people take to, to better manage boredom, do you think? Yeah, I think there's two ways to manage boredom, one of which is much better than the other. One way, and I think this is especially relevant for, so I'm an educator. I know many of the folks listening to this podcast are in um, business and leadership. I think one of the best ways to, you know, regulate boredom is just to prevent it. If you know that boredom is something that happens when you ask too much of people or too little of people, try to make it both so that you're asking the right amount, but also giving people the flexibility to shift, you know, that like, we can't all be performing at peak all the time. And so I think there needs to be a a range there where people have a little bit of freedom to, you know, do more when they can and to also step back and do less when they're sort of overly taxed and burdened. And if we do that successfully um, and we find ways to connect to what we're doing in ways that are meaningful, 
we're not going to feel boredom in the first place. So I actually think the best solution to boredom is just to prevent it. But of course, you know, that's not always possible. And if you can't prevent it, there are ways to solve it and address it. And I think the most important thing to do there is to just be conscious, one, of being bored, of, you know, noting to yourself, like, hey, I actually feel kind of bored right now, and thinking about why that might be. So if you know about why people feel bored in the first place, that gives you some hints on what you can do to make that boredom go away. So personally, for instance, when I get bored at work now, I'll sort of stop and be like, Erin, why, why do we feel bored? Am I like doing too much? Is what I'm doing just too hard for me right now? Do I need to walk it back? Am I doing too little? You know, I'm bored because I'm like stuck in all this monotonous, you know, you know, filling out lots of forms. Maybe I need to set those aside for the moment and do something that's more challenging. Or, you know, do I just need to take a step back and remind myself of why I care about what I'm doing? Because I do, right? I think many of us care deeply about our careers and the work we do, but it can be easy to lose sight of that. And so when I feel bored, you know, filling out those 10,000, you know, room allocation forms or whatever, I just step back and remind myself like, well, you know, this is part of university governance. And one of the great things about academia for us is that we get to be involved in it. And that comes with privileges, but it also comes with responsibilities. And so I just kind of mentally reframe it as like, this is my doing my part to make this university possible. And doing that makes what I'm doing, it's still monotonous, but it feels more meaningful and that makes it less boring. So I, I think we can do two things. We can prevent boredom from occurring by being smart about what causes boredom and setting us and others up to you know, succeed and not feel bored in the first place. But we can also resolve boredom when it happens by reflecting thoughtfully and consciously about why it is that we're bored and what we can do to change those things. You touched on it there already, but from an organizational perspective, should leaders, should organizations perhaps take steps to, to minimize or eradicate boredom or, or should they just accept that it's, it's just part of part of certain jobs and people have to get on with it? I think they should take steps to minimize boredom, not because, well, boredom is aversive, but like I said, not because boredom, feeling boredom in itself is necessarily a bad thing, but because it is a symptom that people are being over under challenged, which isn't a great use of resources. It certainly doesn't make people happy. But it also, I think, is a symptom that of miscommunication in some way that if folks are bored and you're not asking too much or too little of them, you know, you're asking the right amount from them and they're still bored at work I or, in, you know, in your organization, it, it does make me wonder if you've been able to convey to them why the work that they're doing matters. And certainly everyone's going to feel a little bit bored at times. I'm definitely not suggesting that the goal is like boredom eradication, right? Um, but rather just being smart about trying to set up roles within an organization where the reason that those roles exist is clear, the reason that the work that's being done is important and necessary, is clear to the people doing it, and that you're asking the right amount of folks. I think those are all things that are desirable and good for productivity and success, and they also happen to be good for worker morale and well-being. So, you know, there's evidence that uh, folks who get bored at work, 
it, it's not good for morale. It's not good for well-being, but it's also not great for things like long-term retention. And, you know, because one of the things boredom tells us is like, hey, maybe this is a bad situation and I should leave, which I don't think anyone, you know, anyone wants folks in their organization feeling like. So I think some degree of both tolerance of boredom, of understanding, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, employees or people in your organization are childish, but also at the same time, taking it seriously and saying like, you know, a little bit of boredom occasionally is fine and normal and just part of human existence. But if we're noticing that folks here are chronically bored or like some people in some tasks are extremely boring, are there things we can do to better communicate why it matters or better help it be in that kind of sweet spot where it's challenging and not too hard and not too easy. I guess there's a, a link there as much as anything else back to those motivational concepts of job enrichment and job enlargement and so on, just giving people perhaps more within their roles if, if needs be. Absolutely. So if people wanted to find out more about your research, is there anywhere particular they can go, Erin? Sure. Um, most of the papers that we've published are available free to read, free to download on my lab website, erinwestgate.com. Uh, if you just go there and click under research, there is more information about boredom and psychologically rich lives and being alone with your own thoughts than you will ever want to read. Um, but it is all there. And you're also, you know, folks, I'm always open to, you know, being reached out to by email as well. Thank you very much for that. Dr. Erin Westgate of the University of Florida, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. La La Song, Electronic Beat Time, and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution, share, and share alike license.